Well, good morning, everybody. Why don't we get started here? And uh, my name is Steve Sly, and uh, this class is going to be about passing on the faith. About trying to, what what we need to do as parents, grandparents, to uh, do what we can to see that our children, grandchildren, uh, family members uh, hold to the faith. And uh, we're going to be talking about some things that hopefully that we can apply and do and some principles, presuppositions, that kind of thing that cover this important area. Now, um, I kind of need to do a little uh, disclaimer work here and a little groundwork before we get started on this particular class. And um, so let me just say this. We, we did a class like this about 30 years ago <laughs> in, the, in the 1980s, and um, uh, it was up in the, uh, up in the choir uh, practice room, and uh, on that particular uh, Sunday school quarter, I did, all, I did all 13 weeks, and that was uh, uh, an interesting time for me, but this time around, um, I was talking to Jeff about it, and I thought it might be better to try to adapt this particular class and the things we're going to talk about to the way things are today. And um, so I've asked different people during this quarter to take part in this class. And so when, if you look at this little sheet that you'll see here, you'll, you'll see how it's outlined. And uh, I'm going to have a couple of weeks and then a lot of other people are being involved in it. Uh, Jeff next week, uh, Gary Kimball is going to talk about finances and your child. Uh, the Koretschkos are going to do some information about the internet, social media. Uh, Mike is going to talk about preparing your child for the road and educating your child, those kind of things. You can, you can read the list. So um, in an effort to try to make what we're doing as uh, parents and grandparents uh, more relevant to the, the world that we're living in now. Now, let me just tell you from the beginning that <clears throat> when I stand up here and do this, I, I, do not, I do not want you to think that I have arrived as a parent, <laughs> that my children are the examples that you that have set the bar, okay? I, I want you to understand that I'm, I stand up here as a part of what I think is my covenant responsibility. You know, when we take, we raise our hands and talk about raising those children and when they get baptized, because what I hope to do during this quarter is to see some of these subjects talked about and brought about and discussed so that you can take them home with your uh, spouse and with your children and you can talk about them and you can, it can bring up the conversation and you can elaborate on what we're going to talk about in here. This is not going to be the end all and the final discussion on everything that needs to be said about these subjects. But hopefully it will open the door maybe for some discussion in, in your own home. So uh, keep that in mind. And then, you know, also, let me just say this is, you know, to some degree, it's a lot like playing softball or baseball if you ever had that experience. You know, when you stand up at the plate, um, and you get ready to bat, all you can see out in front of you are fielders. You know, there's no place to hit the ball. <clears throat> and you get nervous and panicky. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do this. 
And but when you stand in the field, all you see are holes. Man, we'll never I'll never cover between here and the line. There's too much gap between me and the center fielder. You know, the shortstop's too far over. There's nothing but holes when you're in the field. So a lot of it is, is perspective about how you look at things. And we want to make sure we have the right perspective. We want to have God's perspective on how we look at a lot of these principles. And then um, let, me, let me say this. As I stand up here, I stand up here as um, the covenant head of my home. But I, I don't stand up here as a parent that does it alone. I would not have been able to uh, parent my children without the help of my wife and the efficient, effective help that she's been. And the, the, there is a real necessity, I think, especially for us as men, to draw on the resources of our wife and um, apply the things that they know, the radar that they have that we don't seem to have, the things that they pick up that we don't seem to see, and be able to utilize that. And we need to look on all of this effort as a teamwork uh, job. And then um, I would like to say that back in the 1980s, when uh, we did this class the first time, most of the preparation that I did to get ready for this class, I did in my mother-in-law's home on a Christmas trip that Anna and I took up to North Carolina. And uh, she was gracious to allow me to sit for many long hours at her dining room table and work on that class, some of which I was able to still incorporate this time around. But my mother-in-law was a godly woman, and uh, one of the things that I remember about her was that in her study, in her utility room on her desk, she had her Bible open and she had her Sunday school teacher's manual open, and that told me that all that was a high priority in her life. And I appreciated that, and I appreciated the example that she had for her children and for her grandchildren and to me. And it just shows you the importance of the things that we do that other people see and notice. And of course, it would, I would be remiss to say that I'm very appreciative to my own parents and for all the work that they did as they sought to transfer the faith that had been so real to them to me. So with that in mind, let me, uh, let's pray to start. And um, as we get into some of this class material, you've got an outline there in front of you. Um, and I think we're going to be able to stick to most of it in some kind of order. But down there, about halfway down there where you see uh, baptism and goals written down, goals are going to kind of get bled up into that number three section there about parenting to find. So don't... Um, don't get too panicky if that happens, okay? Uh, and as we get through each of these sections here, I'd like to um, give you a, an opportunity to respond to what we've been talking about. If there's something that, that I said or something somebody else said or a scripture verse we read or something that we ought to discuss a little further that you want to elaborate on, then I'd like you to, to uh, participate and interact a little bit, okay? I don't want it to just be me up here rattling on and on and on. And we'll do it that way. Okay, you got all that? More than you could possibly want. Okay. Let's pray and we'll start. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today. <clears throat> I thank you for each home 
that is represented here because they are here because they are trying to do a good job before you and before a watching world. They love their children. They love their grandchildren. They want to be faithful in the work that you've given them to do. We pray that you would help us today to concentrate on principles that would have eternal meaning and that would be beneficial in the long run. Help us not to get caught up in petty things that really don't matter, but in eternal things. Help us to focus on that, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll set the table for you here a little bit. From no less of a theological journal than Fortune Magazine. <laughs> the editorial. <clears throat> Written by uh, Andy uh, Serwer, who talks about an interview he read in the New York Times... <clears throat> by Daniel Sandstrom, who's a cultural editor of, the Swedish, of a Swedish newspaper. Now listen to what he has to say. The power in any society is with those who get to impose the fantasy. It is no longer, as it was for centuries throughout Europe, that the church imposes its fantasy on the populace, nor is it the total, totalitarian superstate that imposes it, the fantasy, as it did for 12 years in Nazi Germany, for 69 years in the Soviet Union, now the fantasy that prevails is the all-consuming, voraciously consumed popular culture, seemingly spawned by, of all things, freedom. The young especially live according to beliefs that are thought up for them by the society's most unthinking people and by the businesses least impeded by innocent ends. Ingeniously, as their parents and teachers may attempt to protect the young from being drawn to their detriment into the moronic amusement park that is now universal, the preponderance of the power is not with them. <clears throat> now, the editor says this. Ross' ideas got me thinking in a few different directions. Number one, even if popular culture has already been a potent force, it has never been more so because of the vacuum created by the shrinking of traditional institutions. For better or for worse, organized religion, government, sports, and even big business has been discredited and hold much less sway over us. I say for better or for worse, we should acknowledge this as an unprecedented development with unknown consequences. And as pop culture becomes more tightly fused with technology, Witness the daily examples of partnerships between media and the likes of Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. The power and immediacy of pop culture is heightened every second. And then he goes on to conclude. This is his solution for this problem. It will take the kind of thinking displayed by those on our world's 50 greatest leaders list to avoid a race to the cultural bottom. And you know who's on the cover as they're one of their 50th greatest leaders okay now I thought it would be a dark day before I would ever quote Bill Clinton in a Sunday school class <laughs> but the day has arrived Bill Clinton more people can be great leaders than they think they can but they need a purpose greater than themselves today's the day we talk about that purpose okay now, <clears throat> we're going to talk about five presuppositions to parenting. These are sort of the ground rules that we're going to be operating on and what uh, 
what we know is the beginning. Now, you know when the baseball game starts, the umpires and the managers are out there, and they're not just exchanging lineup cards. They're talking about what happens when the ball hits the rafters and what happens when it bounces into the seats and all that. So these are sort of our ground rules, and these are our presuppositions. Here's number one. You cannot be a perfect parent. You have too many sins. You've got too many failings. You've got too many inadequacies. You have conflicts with your children, conflicts with your spouse. You have misunderstandings. You have situations. You, you need grace, and you need to know where to get it. <coughs> Who had 1 Corinthians 15.10? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Grace of God. Number two, Christian parents have to assume there are two parallel truths as we go through this journey together. Number one is that God is sovereign over salvation, over the salvation of our children. And number two is that God uses normal means to draw children to himself. And those normal means, most of the time in our situation, are the parents. God uses other means, there's no doubt about that, but the primary source seems to be parents. God's sovereignty, however, is our hope, not our ability, not our wisdom, not our skills, but God's sovereignty is our hope. And it is a mistake to presume just on one or the other. I can let it all go. God's going to take care of it. I'm not going to worry about things. We need discipline, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to do this, setting guidelines. That's not right. Nor is it right to say it's all up to me. I've got to do it all. It's all dependent on me. Number three, a good offense is better than just a defense. I won't comment on last night any. <laughs> Look, we have to prepare the children for the road, for the world. Mike's going to talk about that in his week. <clears throat> we can do that, or we can try to isolate them from the world. That's not such a good idea. You know, there's, we're not going to celebrate Halloween. There is no Easter bunny at my house. We're going to start off assuming that our children are not Christians. We're going to assume that they need the new birth, that, they, that they're not believers. Once they understand that, once God works in their hearts and puts the Holy Spirit in there and they are, have that power, then they've got the power to deal with the world and what they have to work on there with our help, of course. But we want to see change in their hearts. We want to teach them the gospel. We want to model the gospel. We want to center our homes on the gospel. The gospel, rightly understood, is the kind attraction, the thing that draws them to Christ. And the best way to overcome the world is the beauty of Christ, who had Colossians 2.3. Y'all be ready now. Which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All right. Number four, effective parents understand the new birth. Now, stay with me on this one. World Magazine was citing a book called by Christian Smith and, and a, a lady named Denton called Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Listen to what they came up with. They, they surveyed 3,000 teenagers, okay? They summed up their religious belief with something called Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, or MTD. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Now this has three characteristics to it. Number one, 
they believe in a combination of, number one, works righteousness, number two, religion as psychological well-being, and number three, a distant, um, a distant sort of non-interfering God. Did you get that? A combination of works righteousness, religion as psychological well-being, and a distant non-interfering God. These authors in this book think that this is becoming the dominant religion among religious American teenagers, and it is colonizing Christianity. It's important for us to understand the difference between the real thing, people that are really believers, and this MTD. See, you can have a child that comes to Sunday worship, they're real nice, they're friendly, they're compliant, they socialize with the church group, but they're not believers. And we have to be able to discern that. Here's another one. The sexual habits of evangelical children also reveal the prevalence of this MTD. In the sexual habits. In a, in a book called Forbidden Fruit, Sex and Religion in the Lives of American Teenagers, it exposes the failure of the American home, the American evangelical home, to discern what the, uh, the sexual life and the spiritual values of these children are. It points out that evangelical teenagers are just as sexually active as their non-Christian friends. Now, doesn't that surprise you a little bit or scare you a little bit or something? Maybe it doesn't surprise some of you, but... In fact, there's some evidence that evangelical teenagers may be more sexually active than those who, who don't claim to be Christians. Uh, evangelical teens tend to have their first sexual encounter at a, young age, at a younger age, 16.3 years, than a li liberal Protestant teenager who loses their virginity at 16.7 years. And young evangelicals are far more likely to have had three or more sexual partners, 14% uh, of them have, than, e than uh, other evangelicals, 8.9, or than non-evangelicals, 8.9%. The abstinent vows that you hear about these, these children taken, these uh, teenagers taken, might buy you another 18 months. <laughs> but then 88% of the people that have taken those uh, vows are uh, sexually active after that. Just because somebody says they've accepted Jesus, they've walked the aisle, they've prayed the prayer, doesn't mean that they have really been changed in their heart. See, it's the heart that we're after, not just their behavior on the outside. And so what it is becomes foolish for us to presume that these children that we see, or these young people that we see, all of them have experienced a new birth. The new birth is a radical change in their heart that ushers in new desires, new loves, new direction, new purpose. Did somebody have 1 John 3, 9? No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You're not going to keep sinning if you have really been changed in your heart. Changed behavior proceeding from a spiritual heart transplant is the only real evidence of the new birth. And God, fortunately, is sovereign in this process. That's our main help. Who has uh, John 5, 21? I think I gave that one out, didn't I? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, 
So also the Son gives life to whom he will. <coughs> Son gives life to whom he will. So the bottom line is this. The new birth is known by its fruits, not by a decision. The most important fruit that we're going to see is hunger for God himself. Now, you know as well as I know that God is sovereign in all of this procedure and people coming in to know him. It can be a sudden, it can be a sudden decision on the part of these young people where they remember the day and the hour that they pray and invite Christ in their life. Or it may be a growing into the situation. You know, you've heard people say and pray, I've never known a day that I didn't trust Christ or I pray that for my children. Maybe they can't remember a day. But the new birth normally comes to children through the teaching, through the example, through the relationship they have with their parents. Most of the time, especially the father. Especially the father. So the moral is be wise. Don't presume the new birth without evidence growing which is a growing hunger for God a desire for holiness obedience to parents desire for personal prayer and Bible study a desire to come to worship those are things that we should see if somebody has really uh, had a change in their heart your reaction As Bill or I would say, where, where have I gone wrong here? <laughs> Steve, I don't assume my children are unbelievers necessarily. Uh, I don't assume they are believers either. Uh, I just, what's that? You kind of treat them as believers. You treat them as covenant children. Uh, but I don't assume necessarily that they're unbelievers. I, I, don't, I just don't either way. Uh, just consistently try and put the claims of Christ, what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he said mm -hmm. and what that means in your life and what faith looks like and kind of see what happens. Um, so that's the only thing that, that, I, that at least in my experience, and I, I probably have it wrong, but I, I don't think I assume they're believers. I, I think what, believers, I yeah, I think what they're, you know, in this case, this is from some of Farley's uh, work on gospel-powered parenting, but I think what I think he's trying to keep us from having a false uh, security. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that's the main thing there. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, I think to be honest, the stream of audience, when you assume they have nothing, they are outside the church, and you treat them like any somebody who walks out of the, the street, of, and then they, they don't have any reference to friends, which is what I saw a lot in the Reformed Baptist Church, and they basically treat these kids like until you make a decision you see that you are thinking Christ, you are, you know, you're dead to me. <laughs> and then the kids grow up in the church, they, they don't feel it's part of it, and then when they all know they didn't, so they were never part of it. So that's the other thing that they're not. And I think that's the way we do it here. Right. The right way well, how how we look at these how we look at these children is um, uh, we're going to talk about this in, in a couple minutes about when we get down to the baptism part because how we look at them um, is impacted. You know what Jim said, and and we look at them differently than the than the uh, Christian, the evangelical that does not uh, do that uh, or have that position. So, um, and make a comment. Yes, sir. About your survey in terms of sexual activity, whether you're evangelical or non-believer, it wasn't much difference. Uh, and it's in all other areas of life. To me, 
sometimes that's due to the fact parents do claim to be Christians. We do believe the Bible, but it has minimal control over the day-by-day -day activities. And the parents don't model that the scripture is actually controlling the decision-making. And the children pick up on more that's, what is that little saying, more than, uh, than talk is cheap. Mm -hmm. They're like, the parents model something totally different. They're not honest with their taxes, so therefore honesty doesn't matter. Yes, I believe the Bible, I have salvation, but it's not controlling my everyday activities at all. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about parenting defined here a little bit. Five E was. I left that out. Thank you. Um, the fifth one there, or E, is that effective parents are not child-centered. Effective parents are not child-centered. And this is talk, this is a little bit of what Gary was talking about here, but. What, the, what are the parents mainly in, interested in and what are they focused in on and that's what the children are going to pick up. And I'm thinking here a lot about Sunday activities. You know, and it gets that way when you start getting into sports teams and ballet teams. Uh, and what are the parents deciding is the most important? Are we going to be on the traveling volleyball team? Are we going to be on the traveling soccer team? Are we going to be on the ba ballet team? Are we going to be on the debate team? Children are going to imitate their parents about what they think are important and about what needs to be done. And if God is not the center and, the, and your spiritual life not the center of what you're trying to do, then the, the children are going to pick up on it. Who was it that said what the parents do in uh, moderation, the children will do in, in uh, uh, excess? So you honor God by submitting to the authority over the, uh, that God has given to you. And for the husband, it means submitting to God's authority, to the wife, to the husband's authority, to the children, to the parents. For if you're single parents and you've got the same chain of command without you know, the spouse in there. But the, but the God-centered home requires the cooperation of a godly mate. You know, your wife has to decide, am I going to trust God to speak through my husband, or am I going to try to grab the range of this operation and see if I can make it do a little bit better? And the husband's going to have to decide, am I going to be so hard-headed and, and so um, out of touch that I can't listen to what my wife has to say and try to take her input and apply to what... I got the responsibility before God, but she's got some things that she sees that I don't see, and I've got to pay attention to that, and I need to listen to that. If that's something that you're not doing, you've you got to get on board with that because God's given us these wives and they see things and they understand things that we do not see. And, and we just have to pick up on that. Here's, here's the four symptoms of God-centeredness, okay? Four symptoms of God-centeredness in your home. Number one, are you willing to say no to the child when it's in the child's best interest? And I'm talking about, you know, best interest physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, Number two, mom and dad are united before the children, even if they disagree in the direction. But when they go in front of those children, they better be singing the same song and talking off the same page. Okay? Leave your discussion about what you ought to do in the, in the other room. Number three, make your marriage more important than your children. 
And Ed and I used to take 24 hours every now and then, go to Tampa and, you know, do something besides parent work. Look, your kids need a break. <laughs> Don't think of yourself so high that they can't get away without you for 24 hours, all right? They need a break. Give them a break. And when you go over there, or whatever you're going to do, guess what you end up doing? You end up talking about your kids. That's what you end up doing. <laughs> Which I don't guess is a break. But this is what you do. you, you got to step back a little bit every now and then. You know, and talk about where they all are. You know, they, they change. The stages, just as soon as you get uh, something figured out, they've gone on to the next stage. You know, and you're back here. The train has left the station. So you need to figure out... What your goals are? Who do you, what do you want them to be doing over these next six months? Maybe. What do you want them to? Who do you want them to be friends with? Who do you want them to? What activities you want them to be in? Oh, is it a good idea we do this? Not a good idea to do that. Should we do this? What What can we do to get them a little farther down the road? <coughs> Pray for them. You know, I remember many times us getting down on our knees and praying for our our children. Because you just need some time away to kind of refocus on what you're trying to do with them and where they're going and what they're going to be doing. Pray and talk about their goals. Things change. Number four, be willing to be different. Be willing to be different. You are not going to be in the mainstream if you're following this kind of thing. All right. Let's read a couple of verses here. Who's got 3 John 4? Now listen up. This is, the, this is real important here. Right here. Listen. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those are the only two verses, technically, that I've read about in the Bible that talk about parenting. So you can turn in your outlines, close your Bibles, and we'll go. <laughs> Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. And Malachi 2.15. Somebody have that one? make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one God seeking godly offspring so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife to be your youth 
I mean, what's God seeking but godly offspring? Let's see if we can define parenting a little bit. And talk about some goals which will be interspersed in, into some of this. Um, Peace and Scott in their book called The Faithful Parents say that the goal of a parent is to be faithful to God's word by his grace and for his glory. By faithful, what we're talking about here, you know, and, and, and you hear this a lot, and I think, and rightly so, that we're required, uh, it's required of a man that he be found faithful, not necessarily successful, okay, but faithful. Faithful means what? Well, it means being steadfast, trustworthy, and true concerning our commitment to God and to his word. That's how God is towards you. Towards me, reliable in parental care and committed to the children's good. Faithfulness is not perfection, but faithfulness is rewarded. A person striving to honor the Lord in parenting, repenting, and changing is a faithful parent. Have you apologized to your children? I've had to apologize to my four-year-old grandson. How can we know if we're being faithful? Are we seeking to live habitually according to God's word? Who's got Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Okay. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So there should be some sanctification going on in your home and not just with the children. God will be using the children to work on you a little bit. But being faithful by His grace, as we read early on, is when we'll get some uh, sanctification going on in our own lives. Now, We're going to get into, I want to just touch for a second and remind you a second about um, this baptism thing. This is excerpted from the, um, the uh, what should we call it, the new members class over here. And um, this baptism happens to be my responsibility. So if you want a more elaborate discussion about this subject, you can come the week we do that, three or four weeks, and give you a whole hour of this baptism uh, stuff. But basically, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. Did somebody have Acts 2.39? I promise this for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who are the Lord our God will call. And Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay. Everybody in here, most likely, 80 to 90% of you at least, I would say, if not higher number, have had your children baptized in this church or something like that. Now, um, baptism, as you know, is administered once. It is to babies and to believers. It is to, as far as uh, we're concerned, it is a picture of cleansing. 
from sin. It is a bloodless anti-type as opposed to circumcision, which was given in the Old Testament as a type, as a sign and seal of the covenant, okay? <clears throat> so if we trust Christ, if we belong to Christ, and we are considered Abraham's seed, it is a sign of engrafting into Christ. Baptism testifies by being a symbol. The gospel testifies by words. It is similar to uh, being called, being regenerated, being converted. It's a one-time situation. Men, who, uh, it is, uh, brought in, men are being brought into union with Christ. Are, these are once-only steps that happen, see. So it is a sign and it is a seal. It testifies and certifies about the reality of what God has done. Now look, it's true. These, these babies up there, they don't know what's going on. Okay? Neither did the Israelite baby boy know what was going on when he was circumcised. Alright? But it is a seal, not of man's ability, but of God's power and God's faithfulness to do what he would say he would do. Now, years later, when that covenant child comes to know and, and is in right relationship with God, he's, he reflects back on what actually happened. He says, I realize now, you know, God deserves all the praise. God called me to himself. I did nothing. He regenerated me by the Holy Spirit. He enabled me to repent and to believe. It's because of what God did in my heart through the Holy Spirit that I can put all my faith and trust in Him. He justified me. He adopts me. And it is a perfect picture about how God takes a helpless, incomplete person to do anything for themselves and brings them to Himself by His almighty power. Okay? And our children, as Jim has already sort of alluded to, our children are growing up in this kind of home. The, we have children that have had this experience, all right? They are different than the average uh, child on the street. They're in a covenant home. They've had this sign and seal put on them. Now, the efficacy of the baptism is not tied to the moment of its administration. The inward work of God's grace can occur at any time. It can occur during, before, or after this thing is administered. But the meaning is the same. Even when the outward result is not the same as inward grace. Now, David talked last week, remember, about Esau and Jacob. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have... Now... <clears throat> Isaac, I'm sure, was probably doing the same thing with both these boys, okay? Now, how do you explain that? We do not understand that. I, I don't understand, and there's, there are covenant children out there that have had the sign and seal put on them and are not believers. Now, how does all that work? <clears throat> we don't really know how it works and why it works, but we know that if it's going to work at all, it's going to be because God is sovereign and he works in their hearts and lives to bring them to himself, Right? And, with, and that, that continues to be our ultimate hope. If, if, if you're in a family that has that situation going on, you always got that out there, that God is ultimately sovereign over all this. If, if your children came to Christ and they're doing wonderfully, it's not because you're a great parent, it's because God mercifully worked in their heart. 
if, if you've been faithful and done what you're supposed to do and they don't trust Christ, it's not because you're a lousy parent. It's because in God's sovereignty, that's the timing that he's got right now for them. And we have to take comfort in that. Also take hope. But remember, too, that baptism is not just important once. You improve upon your baptism, as the larger catechism says. You improve. Well, how do you do that? Well, whenever we see it administered, we uh, and apply it to our hearts. When you're sitting in church with your children and somebody gets baptized up front, you should grab them by the shoulder and say, now you were up there one day. This happened to you. You are a covenant child. You are somebody special. Stephanie's got a picture in the children's bedrooms of their baptism day. These people that take pictures all the time, well, she's got them in their bedroom. Well... When one of them decides to hit the other one in the head with a hammer, <laughs> she's able to point to that picture and say, you're a covenant child. You don't go hitting somebody in the head with a hammer. Because you have been set aside. You, know, the Holy, you should be asking the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to make you the kind of person you need to be. So you be kind to your brother and your sister. That's how you improve upon your baptism. See, you're set aside, you're set apart, you're, made, you're somebody that's special before God in, in the church. Comments? Are we on the right track? So what is the gospel? We should all know what the gospel is. Of course. But the gospel is, is so profound that it takes up books and books and books and books and books on shelves. But it's so simple that the most simple kindergartner up there can tell you what the gospel is. Who's got Psalm 143 too? Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. <clears throat> no one is righteous before you. Romans 3.10 says what? Who had that? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No, not one. Romans 7.18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We got problems. Nobody's right. Nobody's good, and we can't do anything about it. And this is the ultimate end of all human suffering. All the diseases in the world, all the wars in the world, all the tragedies in the world are all because of the fall, because of sin. But the, t the temporal suffering is just the tip of the iceberg. Then it's going to go worse than that because it's going to be an eternity. I had to see a patient yesterday morning, and he starts talking to me about this book he read about heaven which is interesting, it was interesting to him. And anyway, he was telling me about, and we were discussing together about how most people think that hell's going to be okay because I won't be down there with my friends. <laughs> hell's going to be horrible because you're going to be all alone. Man's made to be in community. And you're going to be all alone in darkness forever and ever and ever. Now, you cannot comprehend that. We can't comprehend that with a, with a finite mind, what that means. But to understand or appreciate the good news, you've got to understand the bad news. As, as Schaefer would say, you've got to make sure people understand they're lost before you understand they're saved. 
So how desperate our situation is before a holy and righteous God and no hope of, of ever having any type of future relationship with Him or with anybody else if we don't have that right relationship with Him straightened out. So the gospel is the good news, of course, that God humbled Himself, became a man, descended to this uh, earth, impelled by love, took the judgment we deserved on the cross. So Christ, as R.C. Sproul said, would say, Christ came to save us from His own wrath, or in other words, Christ came to save us from Himself. He's holy, He's perfect, He's going to be just. It's going to be carried out. So the Holy Spirit comes to us to impress on our hearts the reality of these truths. And the Holy Spirit is gospel-centered. But that's the good news. That the gospel takes what was done on the cross. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we may be made the righteousness of God in Him. God takes us and puts the gospel clothes on us. God's infinite personal expense without causing him to compromise in the perfection of his glory. So the cross is the heart of the gospel. And from the cross, God proclaims his love and what the gospel is. And then the father raises the son to vindicate his work at the resurrection, and he now sends the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to bring fallen sinful man to himself. All of these gospel truths culminate in the cross. And those of us that are seeking to be wise parents go to the cross. That's where we have to go for direction, for wisdom, for counsel. Because what Christ did on the cross is applicable to what we deal with now. So be careful that we do not substitute something for the gospel. See, the uh, contemporary secular books will give you ten basic step principles of good parenting, uh, how to talk so kids will listen, the price of privilege, blah, blah, blah. Good principles and points on some degree. But they miss some of the basic big questions of life, which are this. What's life's purpose and destiny? What is the nature of authority? What does appropriate discipline look like? What is human nature like? What happens after I death? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Others want to replace the gospel with therapy. Positive parenting, attachment parenting. Others replace the gospel with religion. If I just take my children to church, if I just get them around some good people, then it's going to be okay. But the gospel emphasizes the parent's relationship with God, with each other, and with children in that order. It's not primarily about doing the right things. It's about having the right relationship with God and a relationship that's informed and, and driven by the gospel. So much of what we're talking about here is, is going to be hammered out for you in private, in your closet, before God. Not, not here, not in the worship service, but you and God wrestling these things out and hammering them out. <clears throat> And, and you know that to be true in people that, that, you've, uh, that, you've, that have impacted your life. My mother-in-law sitting there early in the morning reading her Bible, studying her lesson. I'd come down, get ready to go for school, and my dad in the study praying and reading. And, and you, know, you know these things. That's where the battle's going to be won or fought. What is your relationship with God? And your relationship with God's going to be won or lost right there. <clears throat> You've got to, got to do that, make that a priority.
Seven ways the gospel affects parents. Before we do that, anybody want to talk about the gospel? Nobody's going to disagree with that, right? It's like motherhood and apple pie, you're not going to talk about it. Let's see if we can get through seven ways gospel, the gospel affects parents. <clears throat> Number one, it teaches parents to fear God. Now, fearing God is an interesting subject, and we're going to talk about fearing God a little bit later on down the road someplace. I don't know if I'll get to it today or not, but it te- the, the gospel teaches parents to fear God, and God promises to bless parents who fear Him. But just in a sort of a summary way, fearing God has negative aspects to it and positive aspects to it, okay? The children of Israel standing before the mountain before Moses goes up on it. They they fear God because of the lightning and the clouds and the lightning you know, and the thunder and all the earthquakes and stuff going on. So I'm afraid because I'm going to die because God is up there on the mountain. And then Moses is fearing God, but he has a different relationship with God and he goes right up into the cloud. Now what makes the difference? See? There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. And you fear, you know, and some of this is geared on your own relationship with your father. I feared my dad the day I went romp, romping off through the grove following the dog and my mother didn't know where I was because that night I got my butt beat. <laughs> you weren't alone. <laughs> I wasn't going to drag you into that. <laughs> Sounds like you did. <laughs> But you had a, there was not only that fear, but it's a positive fear that he's going to take care of me thing. Now, if you, have, if you did not have a good relationship with your father, then you are behind on the curve, and it's, and it, it's, to your, it, it's harder on you to get all of this stuff that we're talking about, a relationship with God and f- having a fear for God. It's, 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 it's more difficult for you. There's no doubt about it. Because God intended us as fathers to have a certain relationship with our children because it's going to mimic the relationship he has with us. If your father didn't have that relationship with you, it puts you behind a little bit. You're going to have to work a little harder at that, understanding what that's all about. Who had Psalm 130, 3 and 4? I do. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. All right, and 2 Corinthians 7 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Promises. God promises to bless parents who fear Him. Number two, the gospel motivates parents to live by example. Now, you're going to find that in Ephesians 5 and 6. That's how we're supposed to be conducting our marriages, relating to our husbands, relating to our wives, children. The, Ill- the institution of marriage proclaims the gospel. As parents, we should be increasingly humble, consistent, and affectionate with our spouses and with our children. <clears throat> And and I were over at Circle B one time. It's been a couple of years ago, probably now, with Katie and one of her former roommates. This was way before she got married. And we were walking on ahead of them, and I put my arm around Annette, and we were just walking down the trail down there. And 
Katie's friend says, my, my parents, my dad would never do that to my mom. Well, your daughters and your sons need to see you do that to your spouse. I, didn't, I wasn't doing it as an instructive uh, lesson. <laughs> I was doing it because I sort of like to snuggle. <laughs> and your daughter still shakes her head. <laughs> Get your own class, boy. <laughs> Number three. The gospel centers families in their male servant leaders. Christianity is led by men. Men should be servant leaders. Don't forget the don't forget the uh, you know the diagram. We start off with God at the top, men, the wife, children. Okay. But men, we need to be servant leaders. We got the responsibility. God's going to hold us accountable. But we need to go into that home, not as somebody that says, bring me my slippers and where's the paper, but what can I do to help you? Okay? Where, how can I be a help to you? We need to be increasingly humble, consistent. And yes, we still take out the garbage. Even if you have an advanced degree, you take out the garbage. <laughs> Number four. The gospel teaches and motivates parents to discipline their children. Persevere in discipline. How to discipline. Teaching the gospel becomes the end of all Christian discipline. All the principles about the gospel apply here. Number five, the gospel motivates parents to teach their children. Parents are the number one primary teachers in the children's lives. The gospel is the essential content of their teaching. It is more caught than taught, as my daddy would say. And the thing I've learned the last two or three years, four years, and, and you know, Annette and I have talked about this with her experience. You know, she leads the CDC, and I've got a few employees of my own. It's conflict resolution. How do you resolve things that are that when people disagree about something? Mike teaches at a Christian school, so all his employees are Christian, so he doesn't have any problem like that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you what what's the basis for resolving conflict between people that disagree? And sin starts to bubble up, you know, how are you going to deal with all that? It's all in the gospel. The gospel I had a I had a, a you know, being on the school board there and this happened to me several years ago. I had a I had a uh, a teacher come in to my office and say <clears throat> Want to talk to me for a minute? And I said, okay. I just want to apologize to you for some comments I made at the board meeting two or three years ago about that. I just want you to forgive me. Now, my, my comment to her was, God has forgiven me much. How can I not but forgive you much? I mean, I don't, I don't even remember what it was by God's grace in my life. But the thing is, when, you, when you're dealing with this... Um, teaching people and how to how to deal with that that's we have to be very forgiving and very um loving in that situation i think number six the gospel motivates parents to lavish their children with love and affection 
especially fathers, love children sacrificially as Christ loved the church. The gospel defines what Christ's love looks like, especially fathers. Touch your kids. Touch your spouse. Put your hands on them. Hug them. Love them. Let them know that's important. Especially dads with their daughters. I think that's really important. To love your children and physically, you know, hug them. Down there when you're standing there singing hymns or something, put your arm around them and hug them. Or when you see them from someplace, hug them. There is a, they need to know that they are loved and received and that you, are, that you think that they are attractive enough that you want to hug them and hold them. People get in trouble when they don't experience that from us and they have to get it from somebody else. The gospel is a solution for inadequate parents. The gospel is a solution for inadequate parents, and that is us. We are inadequate. We run to the cross daily for mercy, for forgiveness, and hope <coughs> to reapply ourselves to the task of parental fidelity. All right. I guess I better quit. I got more I could go for in a while, but it's hard to know how to gauge the, the content for the time. Any comments on what we've done in that section or so far? Jeff McDonald's going to talk about small children next week and uh, some distinctives and um, principles that deal with them. And um, I'm sure that'll be interesting. And you can look down the list and see all the ones that are coming. I appreciate y'all being here and um, your comments. I, I uh, <clears throat> let me just give a little disclaimer here. Um, a lot of what a lot of what I'm getting I'm I'm giving to you I got from um, Carl Spackman's book on parents passing on the faith. That was especially helpful to me the first time around. Um, William Farley on gospel powered parenting. You want to read some more about that? He's very helpful. I've used a lot of his things today. Um, Peace and Scott on the faithful parent. They have some good things to say in there as well. Any of those resources would be good for you. I think if you're interested in reading more. Okay. Let's pray and we'll go. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you for your faithfulness to us even when so many times we have not been faithful to you. I pray that you would help us to be consistent in our walk before these children who really for the most part still hang in the balance between whether or not they're going to really choose and adopt, make real in their own lives the faith that we think is so important, or are they going to take some other wandering trail. We pray that you would help us to be sensitive to what is in front of us and to be aware of their needs and of our shortcomings. And may we always seek to take them and ourselves to the foot of the cross. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.